continue worshiping together today, you may turn in your favorite Bible app or the Bible, the Pew Bible, and receive this reading from the book of Exodus, beginning in chapter 1, verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? and allowed the boys to live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. 
Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Amen. Welcome to those who have joined us since we began our worship together. We're glad that you're here. And I invite all of us who have gathered in to pray with us, pray together, and pray with me now. Loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. For you and you alone are our rock and redeemer. Amen. Today's episode of the Our Messy Biblical Family series begins in the kind of way that signals something dangerous is coming. You know when a character in one of your favorite television shows is introduced and the music and the camera angle and the general vibe of the scene make it very clear that this character is going to be a villain? Well, it's kind of like that in our story. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Why is this so ominous? Well, in the story immediately preceding this one, the Jacob cycle concludes with Joseph and his brothers fully reconciled, and all of them with their families living peacefully and prospering in the areas around Egypt. But some time has passed, and now there is a new king who doesn't evidently know his history, or perhaps he's ignoring his history or whitewashing his history. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know him personally, and he doesn't remember or willfully ignores that Joseph, the Israelite Joseph, was second only to Pharaoh in power and in authority, and that Joseph kept the Egyptians alive during a time of famine. This new king doesn't remember that Joseph married an Egyptian and, and had half-Egyptian children. He forgets how Joseph and all the descendants of Jacob had lived side by side with the Egyptians through trying times. So how will this new king treat Jacob's descendants, immigrants who have lived long in the country and who've contributed to and made their home in Egyptian society? Well, it doesn't take long for the story to answer that question. Scholars make much of the fact that the new Pharaoh's actions are consistent with those of tyrants throughout the ages. One writes, and I quote, attempting political strategy for new leaders, whether an Egyptian Pharaoh or a Nazi Hitler, involves trying to solidify power by singling out a relatively weak minority or outsider group and calling them an enemy. Fear of others can be a powerful source of unity. 
In Exodus 1, Pharaoh singles out the rapidly expanding Hebrew minority as a terroristic threat that may endanger Egypt's security and way of life. There is no hint, however, in the biblical narrative that the Israelites are anything but good, faithful citizens of the empire. Yet the delusional Pharaoh imagines that the growing but still small Israelite minority in Egypt is more numerous and more powerful than all the Egyptians. And then he warns the Egyptian people that in the event of war, the Israelites might take up arms against the Egyptians. He just made that stuff up. It's not in the story. We have no reason to believe any of that was true. And in the middle of all of this fear-mongering, Pharaoh tries three different, ultimately unsuccessful strategies to stem the growth of the Israelite people. First of all, Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites, putting them in work camps for building projects and field labor. Second, he commands midwives to kill Hebrew boys at birth. And then commands all Egyptians to throw baby boys into the Nile River. Now, in our text, it says Hebrew baby boys, but the original, the original text, the oldest text, and in the Hebrew itself, it does not specify. It says throw all, the ba- all Egyptians throw baby boys in the Nile. This new Pharaoh was off. Now, this is the backdrop for the birth of Moses, a new pharaoh who, driven by fear, accuses, enslaves, and kills the baby boys of his own citizens, while stirring up a general mood of anger and distrust. Perhaps you noticed in the middle of the story, it was no longer just Pharaoh who was doing things, but it was the Egyptians who dreaded the Israelites. The Egyptians had been convinced to be ruthless against the Israelites. But as a counter to this tyrant and all of the anger and hatred and oppression that he stirred, as a counter to this and as an irony to the Pharaoh's implication that baby girls would be no threat. Our family story tells of women and girls who engaged in what we here at Foundry call sacred resistance. The midwives, Shifra and Pua, certainly not heavy on the power scale of society, simply refused to kill the Hebrew baby boys. And when asked, by Pharaoh. Can you imagine them coming before Pharaoh and having to give an answer? They said, well, they, they likely uh, play on Pharaoh's likely stereotypes of the Hebrew women, suggesting that unlike the perhaps more delicate Egyptian women, the Hebrew women are more vigorous and give birth before the midwife has a chance to arrive. These women knew how to play on a stereotype to their own advantage. And when Moses' mother, Jochebed, we learn her name, she has a name, we learn it later in the story, 
When Jochebed can no longer hide her beautiful baby boy, hiding itself being an act of resistance, when she can't hide him anymore, she carefully prepares a watertight basket and places her son in it and puts it among the reeds at the edge of the river. And Jochebed's daughter, Moses' sister, perhaps the sister we come to know as Miriam, stands watch over the baby. And some of us of a certain age will probably have an image that comes into our minds of what happens next, that scene from the 1956 film, The Ten Commandments. I went back and watched the scene, it is truly awful. (laughs) That scene when Pharaoh's daughter wades into the Nile elegantly, and finds the baby in the basket while her attendants make truly, truly ridiculous chatter along the riverside. I mean, it's just so bad. And the daughter finds, the princess finds the baby in the basket. Others, uh, however, may conjure the animated 1998 film, Prince of Egypt, very different scene, with the basket and the baby jostling down a river filled with danger until all of a sudden, as only those sorts of films can do, it floats gently and peacefully into Pharaoh's daughter's palace with this sort of things opening up and birds flying away and it peacefully lands upon the banks of the river and the Pharaoh's daughter is there to receive him. No matter our mental image, the story in the text is that the Egyptian princess has compassion for the crying infant. That's the word used. In our translation, it says, had pity. That word can mean have pity, have compassion, or spare. That is, give life, save life. The princess has compassion for the crying infant and recognizes at once that the baby is one of the Hebrews' children. She knows what's going on. She knows what her father has ordered. And she, like the midwives, resists that murderous edict of her tyrant father. Rather than throwing the baby into the Nile to kill him, she draws him out. The Hebrew is mashah. She draws him out of the water and saves him. She names the child later when he is grown Moshe because she masha out of the water. Uh, just an interesting side note, Moses is actually the Hebrew form of a common Egyptian word meaning son. It's sort of like a Hebrew-Egyptian word mashup. And I tried really hard to come up with a very clever line about Moshe, Masha, and Masha, but I couldn't quite make it work. Anyway, just a little side note. Then what happens in the story, in the book, here's where we go next. Miriam, we assume it might be Miriam, speaks up. Moses' sister, the child, speak, the child speaks up to this Egyptian princess and offers to bring a Hebrew woman to nurse the baby a young Hebrew girl practicing courage and resistance. The princess agrees to this and is ready to pay for the service, not to take it for granted. Rabbi Steve Weissman shared on this past Tuesday during our Ask the Rabbi Bible study, he shared that it wouldn't be too far-fetched to imagine that the princess surmised that the Hebrew girl lingering near the basket was in fact the baby's sister, 
and that the woman who she went to fetch was the baby's mother. And I want us to imagine that for just a moment, that the daughter of the Egyptian pharaoh defies her father at great peril and not only adopts a Hebrew baby boy who otherwise would have been killed, but invites, not only that, but invites the boy's mother to nurse and help raise him. This whole story is a heartbreaking story on every level. I'm not trying to romanticize or minimize the injustice and trauma of the situation. But what the story says is that, that the princess had compassion. And in the midst of oppression and danger, compassion flashes like light on the water, giving hope and life. This is what can happen and often does happen in the midst of danger and distress and trauma. People find a way to connect and to care for one another, often across lines of difference. When there is compassion, when there is courage to resist hateful and violent leaders and policies, bonds of friendship and even familial closeness can form. As I was thinking about this, I remembered the award-winning 2013 film, Dallas Buyers Club, starring Matthew McConaughey and Jared Leto. I hadn't thought about it in years, but I thought about it because it's a story where people who would have never shown an ounce of kindness to one, or one another became family. It's a very difficult movie to watch but a powerful portrait of people trying to survive as AIDS started sweeping through whole communities in the mid-1980s. And I want to tell you part of the story, especially for those who do not know it. The story is of a promiscuous Dallas electrician and rodeo cowboy named Ron Woodruff, who is diagnosed with HIV and AIDS and told that he has about 30 days to live. Woodruff's family and friends ostracize him, mistakenly assuming he contracted AIDS from gay sex, when in reality, Woodruff is straight and just as homophobic as his family and friends. He's fired from his job and evicted from his home. He finds out about and then bribes a hospital worker to get him AZT, the only drug that was then approved for testing in human clinical trials by the FDA. That drug that he took, exacerbated by his cocaine and alcohol abuse, caused his health to deteriorate. Recuperating in the hospital, he meets Rayon, a drug-addicted, HIV-positive trans woman toward whom he is initially hateful and hostile. He was really awful to her. And as his health worsens, he drives to a makeshift Mexican hospital to get more AZT. And the facility there is run by an American who's lost his license to practice medicine in the U.S. because his work with patients with AIDS had violated U.S. regulations. And that doctor warns Woodruff against taking AZT, calling it poison, 
and instead gives him a new cocktail of drugs not yet approved for use in the United States by the FDA. After taking that medicine, three months later, Woodruff finds that his health is much improved and realizes, he realizes he could make some money by importing the drugs and selling them to other HIV-positive patients. This began as a business venture, and he gets the drugs over the border by masquerading as a priest and claiming they're for personal use. He starts selling the drugs in Dallas on the street and at gay nightclubs and bars, uh, but he reluctantly later sets up a partnership with Rayon since she can bring in more business. The pair established what they called the Dallas Buyers Club, charging $400 per month for membership, and then they would give away the medicine, which circumvented the laws that made it illegal to sell the drugs. The club is popular, it thrives, and Woodruff gradually begins to respect Rayon as a friend. Now, this story in the movie includes a lot of the drama around politics and policies that kept life-saving drugs from development and distribution. But the part of the story that has stuck with me all these years is the relationship between Woodruff and Rayon. They become not only business partners, but roommates and close friends. They share life together. And there's a scene when they're grocery shopping and arguing about what food to buy, bickering like a, an old married couple. And Woodruff bumps into one of his old friends from before, TJ, and they start to talk. And when TJ sees Rayon, he makes a homophobic comment. And Woodruff immediately introduces, oh, this is my very good friend Rayon, who extends her hand in greeting. TJ refuses to shake Rayon's hand, at which point Woodruff uses force to make TJ acknowledge Rayon, determined that this man will acknowledge the dignity of this beloved one. And when the scuffle is over, the look on Rayon's face is priceless. These two unlikely people were family. In our family story from Scripture today, we see unlikely people become family in the midst of danger, violence, and injustice. In this story, those with power and those under the thumb of power each use their agency to preserve life. The daughter of the tyrant Pharaoh and the mother and children of the enslaved Israelites all become actors in the story of God's liberating, saving purposes in the world. These women show courage and compassion as they make their choices. And as a result, Moses, a powerful prophet and liberator, is saved. And new family bonds are created. Of course, there doesn't have to be a murderous tyrant on the loose or a tragic epidemic for these family bonds to happen. In our own lives, there will be many reasons for creating found families. That phrase we use for those people who are not blood kin, but who are as close to us as family. 
For some, it may be that our family of origin rejects us or distances themselves from us due to our sexual orientation or gender identity or choice of partner or other life choices. Perhaps there's still a tie to the family who raised us, but the relationships that truly sustain are those of our closest friend circle, our found family. For others, we may enjoy a normal, good, messy relationship with our families and also, due to distance or singleness or other factors, have created a found family in the place where we live that group of people with whom we share daily life, who share the the highs of our lives and surround and support us in the lows. What a gift it is to be able to find family in so many different ways and places. Maybe that's one reason I find the beginning of our Scripture, this family story that we heard today, so sad. I find it so sad. Because the new Pharaoh was not in any way threatened by the Israelites. In many ways, the descendants of Jacob, Joseph, and all the other brothers were found family. The Egyptians and Israelites had gotten through hard times together. They were living in peace, so far as we know. Some, like Joseph, I doubt he was the only one, had married across ethnic lines. They were all together. But Pharaoh, out of jealousy and fear, stirred up the us versus them virus. That, the fear that turns to hatred, the fear that breeds a need for control over others, the fear that cannot find a reasonable and just way to welcome the immigrant, to embrace the other and the gifts that they're bringing. This fear is the virus of division and violence. But compassion and love cast out fear. And if we live with compassion instead of fear, we will begin to recognize that family is all around us. We will be able to perceive that we are all kin because we are all beloved children of God, members of the beloved clan. And we will be free to create and be part of found families in all sorts of configurations with all sorts of people. Strengthened through these bonds of deep care and love, we are then strengthened to use our own agency to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. As our baptismal covenant reminds us through the found family that is the church, we are incorporated into God's mighty acts of salvation. And just like all the women in our story today, our choices, when they are driven by compassion and courage, can make all the difference in someone's life. And as we learn from our own faith family history in scripture, one life saved can have saving consequences for a whole nation and even for the whole world. Thanks be to God.